welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, your chowderheads, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And this is Cam the Provocateur pulling up a stool at the Bulldog Cafe. Well, um, I think before we go and take a big old slice of the film we're going to talk about this week, we do have a special guest to introduce. Um, and we've got quite a story behind this as well, which we're going to get into. But uh, we have Mr. Aaron White joining us from the Feelin' Film podcast. Hello, sir. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me on. Uh, it's our pleasure. It's about time we got round to it. I think we've been talking on DMs for at least a year or something like that. It was just it was about <laughs> yeah. finding the right film, you know. <laughs> We were feeling which film. It's funny. I thought that I had covered The Rocketeer on our podcast, and the, which I do with my best friend, and I actually messaged him last night in shock going, dude, I was looking for our episode because I wanted to, to re-listen to it. <laughs> we never did. We never did it. I guess we talked about it. So I, this is my first chance actually getting to podcast on the film. It works out great. Ah, see, I actually went, it, one of the things I did before I approached you with it was I had a little dive into the back catalogue and I was like oh, oh, you're smart don't, smarter don't than me see it. I don't uh-huh. see it um, but it, it's one of those films I imagine a lot of people who do film podcasts have spoken about so I imagine you've brought the Rocketeer up before probably so but um, putting the Rocketeer to one side which we'll come back to we'll fly back to in a minute um, let's talk about you and, and feeling film and now we got chatting a while ago but just talk a, a little bit about feeling film first yeah, so Feelin' Film came into existence about six plus, almost seven years ago now, which is insane to think about. Uh, but we, my best friend and I, were having conversations over a voice chat app. We we had been going through Battlestar Galactica, and we would watch an episode or two each week, and we would talk about it. And we just thought up this idea. I was like, you know, I listened to a lot of film podcasts. I said, why don't we just record ourselves at some point and see what happens? And we did. We did a first episode ever on, I think it was Batman v Superman when that came out. <laughs> we were very high on it. The discourse was not. Oh, wow. And so that was like the perfect thing to kick off our, we feel this film and we don't care about your technical BS crap. We like it and we love it and we're going to talk about why. And we've evolved over the years since then. I ended up getting press credentialed in Seattle, became a member of the Seattle Film Critics Society. And so we do an episode a week, much like you guys do, where we deep dive into a movie fully, like complete dissection and and talk about it. And then I also do weekly episodes of new releases that are spoiler free. And I do interviews and all kinds of other tangential stuff. I'm always thinking about new projects. It's it's impossible. I'm, I'm a serial creator and I have to check myself sometimes because if I could just do nothing but get paid to podcast all day. I would literally podcast about every topic that I have any interest in whatsoever. Here, here on that one. Um, <laughs> now, I had a question because, you know, obviously feeling film all about the world of film. Do you remember what the movies were that inspired you to, you know, become in love with film in the first place? Oh, gosh, those are big questions. Um, I will say that I actually was not a cinephile prior to starting my podcast now I would consider myself one. I was a movie lover. I've always gone to film, you know, cinema as much as I could. I grew up with a very core set of 90s and 80s movies that my parents turned me on to. So 
my childhood faves that really have stuck with me the most are things like Top Gun, the original, always been a favorite, The Princess Bride, Jurassic Park, I saw about 15 times in a dollar theater when those existed. And that was amazing. You could go, literally, it was a dollar. You paid a dollar, dollar for the movie, dollar for popcorn. And I, I would watch it back to back to back some days when I was in my early teens. The Last of the Mohicans is another all-time favorite that has stuck with me from that era. And in general, I just am a person who is very emotional by nature in my real life, in my normal life. And so I get really excited about how movies actually make me feel. And so I just stick with that vibe. And those are the ones I gravitate toward. I mean, absolutely. I That's a great list of films. And I pine for the days where I wasn't paying 20 pounds just to go and see, I don't know, Beast. Oh, mm. gosh. <laughs> Although Cam and I have a Beast story that we will one day recount. I actually haven't seen Beast, and I don't think I ever will see Beast. I have. It was pretty good. Yeah, I'm it's sure not it bad. was, Cam. It's fun. Nah. Not bad. Fun movie. Lies. Heresy. Heresy. Idris Elba can't put a good film out to save his life. Anyway. What? He's made, he had Whoa. two out this, this like, past couple weeks. Any of them good? Yes, both of them. Mm. Jury's out on that one. Now, I alluded to a connection between Spy Hards and Feeling Film earlier. And it's time to explore that because a rumor has it that uh, Feeling Film were looking at expanding into the universe of espionage. Is that true, Aaron? Once upon a time, it was. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I mentioned I'm a serial creator. And so some of my more, I guess, preferable interests within film, I tend to start brainstorming these ideas about how I could do an offshoot podcast so that I could talk about just adventure movies like treasure hunting films and i've created an entire concept around that before one of my concepts a couple years back was i'm looking at my document i still have all of my notes here for an unnamed spy podcast and it, it kicks off with my potential name list here that i you know was generating and, and that was what i was going to do was something and it was actually very similar to your show and when i discovered you guys when you guys kicked off about a year and a half now, maybe ago. We've just gone over two years now. I was like, uh oh, this is exactly what I was going to do. And they're doing it full time as a main show. So there's just no way that I'm going to copy somebody directly. And it ended up being something that wasn't ever going to work for me anyway, because I just, I shred myself too thin. But I did find it pretty interesting that your ideas around like the knock list were so, so similar to what I had concepted out for a potential show. So, I, yeah, it made me really fall for you guys right away. I mean, firstly, the, the jury is out. The jury is out if this is oh, no. actually working for <laughs> us <laughs> after two years. We did just cover the Dr. Goldfoot films. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Mm. But what was um, the title? Like, did, do you have a, a title for, like, what the knock list would be? Um, let's see. So, I, so the, the titles for the show, by the way, I'll tell you those real quick. The two that I was kicking around, or three, was... I had Covert Cinema was was one of my options. Mm -hmm. I had Feel and Film Undercover, which I was a big fan of. Mm -hmm. And then I, I was trying to find a way to work Operation, you know, in there somewhere um, because of obviously spies, espionage, etc. So my idea was some sort, I didn't have a name for it. It was going to be some sort of an ongoing scoring system with a ranked list via a letterboxed. So I, that's where the tie-in kind of comes in. And I was going to create a list of categories, things like 
tech, elements of subterfuge, globe trotting, and we were going to essentially give values to each of these different primary ideas that you find in most of these genre movies. And then once we got to the end, we were going to have it ranked via the scoring system. And if we ended up with ties, then the hosts would talk about it and we would basically like that website called Ranker where you, where mm -hmm. you hit up or down on the arrow and we would just move things up or down a spot based on whatever, wherever it landed. Um, and so it, it was, that was very, very similar to what you guys ended up doing. I, I find this entirely fascinating. I mean, before we started, there was, I think, one sort of spy movie podcast that doesn't put out as much anymore. There's been a couple since, um, and we're good friends of all of them. So it's all like we've had, I think, pretty much all of them on the show at this point now because uh, we're all spy bros out there. Um, but I'm fascinated with the idea that you got so close to it. Now, I have a couple of like breaking it down questions. In your head, this was, a, I, I suppose, like a short series, like a, a mini series within Feeling Films podography. Whatever the it, word it would have been that. a... Well, no, it was when I was a little bit more interested in trying to make myself into a network and I was looking mm -hmm. at having, I mean, it would have had its own podcast feed and it would have been like, you know, whatever this is presented by Feel and Film and maybe been, I was hoping to do a bi-weekly show and then also create this adventure podcast covering like treasure hunting and exploration films and do like one each week, but alternate. That was the, the dream. Well, let, let's, let's push the envelope. And say you got to picking your first film, or you may have already done it. What is your first film? So it was going to be, we were going to launch with three episodes, right? An intro mm -hmm. episode, because this is, this is what podcasters are supposed to do. You're supposed to always, when you put it out there, you should have a few episodes ready to go. So in order to mix like classic greatness with fun, blockbustery greatness, we were going to launch with North by Northwest and True Lies. Okay, and very early on in our run, for sure. Yep. Yeah. North by Northwest was number two for us. Yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering if a James Bond was going to crop up in there. Great minds but, think yeah. alike. I didn't want to start with a series. That was actually part of the discussion. I, I, you mm -hmm. knew, you know, you have so many. You've got the Mission Impossible series. You got the the James Bond series. You got the Bournes, and you're going to eventually go through each and every one of them. But I didn't want to kick off with one of those. Yeah, I wish we'd been a bit smarter in our early days about programming. It's hard, That's though. A... You just don't know until you get kind of in. The... I mean, it takes a while when you're starting a podcast to get into a flow mm. and really find what it... it's going to evolve over time. I mean, Feel and Film has changed its format several different times um, for how we do our main show. You just you, you roll with what you're feeling as you, literally as you go. Hmm. <laughs> well, speaking of evolving, then let's talk a bit more about you. We've we've. We found out about the spy connection between Feel and Film and Spy Hards. You're officially a spy bro now. Congratulations. Welcome to the team. But as for you, Aaron, obviously you have a passion for espionage cinema because you wouldn't have thought about doing this show in the first place. So before we talk about this week's film, like, what are some of your favorite spy movies? Well, uh, all of them. I, hmm. It's hard for me not to enjoy this genre. I say that and then I think about like The Gray Man. And that's just a critical. <laughs> but I, I enjoy those things. Even when I can critically look at them and be like, Ugh, I wish that was mm -hmm. different or better. I'm a big fan of the Bourne series. I love the Mission Impossibles. I would say that some some of the Bond movies have grown. Le I've grown less attached to them over the years. They just have not aged that well 
for me, mm-hmm. as I know you guys have discussed some on your show, things like North by Northwest, one-offs, obviously True Lies, as I mentioned, I tend to enjoy, I, one that I really like is, gosh, now I can't even think of the name of it, but the Tom Cruise movie with Cameron Diaz. Night and uh, Day. Night and Day. I absolutely love Night and Day way more than most people do. Mr. It's and Mrs. Fun. Smith, some of the fun ones like that. So I re- really, it's a robust enjoyment of the genre and just anything where someone is being secret about their appearance and trying to achieve a goal and take down some big bad. Like just, it's very condensed into that. I'm usually going to like it a lot. I mean, in terms of spy credentials, Cam, I I don't think we could pick anyone better. No, (laughs) no, definitely. I mean, those are all really awesome picks and we haven't talked about night and day yet, but we did cover it over on the Paul Dano podcast is paul dano okay um and we had a lot of fun talking about it there yeah it's it's uh, surprisingly two years and we've still never spoken about a single tom cruise spy film on the main show i don't know how we avoided it i don't know it doesn't really make sense but we've yes we'll do one of them fairly soon i think yeah i think we need to take that off um but i think we should talk about this week's film and and glide into that so let's all kiss our photo of jennifer connelly put it up on the (laughs) dashboard Cam, Absolutely. <laughs> what are we talking about this week? Yes, we are talking about 1991's The Rocketeer, directed by Joe Johnston. Welcome to The Rocketeer. Uh, <laughs> uh, mid. Yeah. Mid. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, in terms of previous experiences with this film, I had never seen it. Oh, wow. Which is surprising, because it feels like it's right up my alley, but we'll get to that. So I'll throw it to you, gents. Aaron, first. Obviously, I, I get the feeling you'd seen this film before. Yes, many times. I revisited it a couple of years ago. This is when I thought we had covered it on our show, when it popped mm. up on Disney+, Plus. when Disney+, Plus launched. Yeah. It was one of the movies that I was like, oh my gosh, my childhood's available again. Let me introduce my teenagers to this. And so I watched it then, and then again for this. Well, take us back to your teenage years. I Did you catch this in theaters or was it like a, a, a VHS home release thing you saw it? Definitely don't recall catching it in theaters. My memory is terrible. I'm old. But I do remember being a prolific user of both the local video store and our blockbuster. At the time, my parents, we would rent movies practically every weekend. So my guess is that that's how I saw it would have been a rental VHS. Uh, and was teenage you, apart from going through all the angst of the early 90s, um, <laughs> were you a fan of The Rocketeer? I don't remember being a huge fan of it. I liked it. I remembered it, and mm. but it was very fuzzy. I didn't remember the specifics, like the Nazi plotline. I didn't remember it all until it happened when I rewatched it. I was like, oh, oh yeah, I forgot about that being part of this movie. In fact, I wrote in my letterbox review of it when I rewatched it back in 2020 that it took me about half the movie to figure out why Brendan Fraser didn't sound like himself. Because in my head, this movie had merged with The Mummy, and I was convinced oh. that this was Brendan Fraser that was starring in this movie. And and it just, it was forever before I realized, oh, it's not actually him. It's this guy named Billy Campbell that just happens to look a lot like him, in my opinion. So I didn't have a huge history. Yeah. Very similar energy, too, to The Mummy and The Rocketeer in terms of what they're trying to deliver of this kind of 1930s pulp kind of feel that's not ironic no it really feels like if you put any of those actors in the mid-90s in this role it would have just been fine definitely 
Um, Cam, do you have any strong recollection of... Uh, I mean, you were in your late 60s at this point when the film came out, but... It's true. It's true. Yeah. It was my retirement year, actually. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this one was actually a big deal uh, for me when it was coming out. I remember obsessing over... Um, the pre-release of The Rocketeer. Um, my sister was a subscriber to Disney Adventures magazine. And I remember there was a whole cover story um, interview with Billy Campbell about the movie. And I remember reading that interview over and over and over because I was a big fan of movies like Dick Tracy. Um, the 89 Batman had scared the crap out of me, so I hadn't seen all of it. But just the idea of these kind of comic book adaptations, pulp adaptations was really interesting to me. And this one looked right in line with what I liked, which was something I think a little more upbeat than the very dark Batman that I would later fall in love with. But at the time, yes. So I remember my family went and saw this in theaters and I had a great time with it. I loved it in theaters and I never saw it again until yesterday. And I don't know why, because I've seen Dick Tracy, you know, probably like a dozen times. I've seen Batman many a times. A lot of the movies of this kind of era, Batman Returns, countless times. For some reason, I never rewatched The Rocketeer, and it wasn't because I didn't enjoy it. I don't have an answer as to why that is. Which I think it might be something we get into in a little bit. It's like the legacy of this film mm-hmm. and how opinions may have shifted. But... Yeah, I had never seen it, so I have no impression to make on it particularly. But speaking, Cam did mention interviews in in Disney magazines. We do have an interview for The Rocketeer this week. We are joined by the co-writer, Mr. Danny Bilson, who's going to take us all the way through the writing of this film. And it's very troubled pre-production. Yes, indeed. Yeah, very troubled. Uh, Which I think Cam may well just get into in a moment as well. Um, So before I uh, let Cam off the the pin in the ground, he flies into the stratosphere. Here is your (laughs) letterbox.com. You're welcome for that one, everyone. Your letterbox.com synopsis. The Rocketeer. Three years before the United States declares war, Cliff Secord leads America's first battle against the Nazis. Young pilot Cliff Secord stumbles on a top-secret rocket pack, and with the help of his mechanic-slash-mentor, he attempts to save his girl and stop the Nazis as... The Rocketeer. Dun-dun-dun! Insert James Horner score here. Yeah. Um, But, yeah. Good letterbox.com synopsis. About the right length. But, um, Cam, what do you have for us? Oh, boy. We're going to go on a journey, I think, a little bit with this one. But, um... Strap yourselves in. Yeah, yeah, strap yourselves in. So this was um, based on a comic book series um, by Dave Stevens that uh, he was a 30s fiend, self-professed, who was just absolutely obsessed with kind of that era and kind of the iconography of that era. And he got his start in 1975 working on the uh, newspaper Tarzan comic strips before moving into things like um, he worked in animated TV on like the Godzilla animated show and Super Friends. He also um, did storyboarding professionally. He worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark and also the Michael Jackson Thriller video, that iconic video that everyone knows. Um, And in 1982, he published the first issue of The Rocketeer. And The Rocketeer does not have like a long run. Um, I have the collected graphic novel. Altogether, the story is about 120 pages. And it took him about 14 years to crank it out. Like, it was a very long-term project. 
being doled out piece by piece. But like pretty much right off the bat, there was a lot of interest for the Rocketeer. The rights were snapped up like one year later. Um, and it was going to be director Steve Miner, who had directed Friday the 13th Part 2 and 3, um, who was going to oversee the Rocketeer. And he really wanted to do it as like a low-budget, black-and-white film that would really evoke like the serial adventures of that era and really do it kind of true to that form. Ultimately, didn't go anywhere, and it just kind of lapsed. So around 1985, um, Stevens collaborated with writers Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo on adapting it into a proper screenplay that they could pitch to studios. And Bilson and DeMeo um, had gotten their start in 1984, really, with the movie Trancers, which, if no one has seen Trancers, it's a sci-fi action movie, very, very heavily inspired by stuff like Blade Runner. It's kind of like that whole era where they're just cranking out those types of movies on the regular, you know, straight to video, and even for low-budget theatrical features. Trancers is very fun. It's about 75 minutes, and you can watch it on, I believe, Tubi TV. I think the whole series is on there, but they only did the first one. And they did a few things like this. Like, there was another one called The Eliminators they did that was very similar. I mean, there's there's several Trancers films. Yeah, they are. They only wrote the first one, but uh, I think there's, what, like six of them? Yes, six. I think they're credited as, as uh, with characters, so I guess it's just like story by or something like that. Yeah, and actually Helen Hunt is uh, the co-star of the first Trancers. I think she appears in the second one, too. Wow. I, I almost, I'm going to go look this up while you're, you're talking about it. I wanted to see what the art looks like. Yeah, they're, they're really fun. Um, Schlocky sci-fi. Okay. Yeah, totally. Uh, but done well. And um, so the big break for this, you know, writing duo was they were the exec producers and developed for TV, the Flash TV show from 1990, which ran into 91. Was it, was it in the same vein as like the Hulk? Mm, Hulk's like... I know it's like, obviously Marvel DC. Don't shout at me, people. I know the difference between the two, but like, no, no, not in terms of like company. But Hulk is also like kind of like that fifteen years beforehand when they make that show, and it has a little more of that wandering town to town kind of helping people, which was a popular format for shows in that era, like stuff like Kung Fu. Also, a lot of shows like that. Um, I think the Flash was a little more, almost like. I'm sure it probably feels now like a little bit of a precursor to what they do now in their CW shows. Right. A little more kind of like bubblegum kind of storytelling, uh, quite lively. I know Mark Hamill played the trickster on that show. So I think it had more of a kind of if you look at movies like a Dick Tracy or even The Rocketeer, a little more of that kind of vintage comic book feel. Pulpy. Yeah. Yeah. So they developed this script for a while and eventually attracted a director in uh, William Deere who was probably best known he'd gotten his start in 1969 just doing docs and then moving into genre films but his big kind of movie was 1987's harry and the hendersons which i don't know if that went across the pond scott did it no <laughs> okay fair enough it's about bigfoot <laughs> yeah i i feel like i if like someone said picture harry and the hendersons i think i can picture the harry chap yeah he's just yeah. like a big sasquatch right mm -hmm. that's the idea yes absolutely mm -hmm. um but I think that's just through, like, cultural osmosis. I don't think I've ever seen anything to do with that show. Uh, yeah, like, it was the movie was somewhat of a hit, and then they made a TV show based on it as well. I actually have right. a hairy statue sitting on my DVD shelf that I found at a uh, thrift mart. How big is it? 
Oh, not very big. It's like a pretty small statue. Like if you see your typical comic book statues, you know, when you mm-hmm. go to like one of those stores, it's about that size. Okay. I, I didn't know about this Harry side of you, Cam. I'm, Thank I'm you. scared. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So William Deere was attached to this movie for a while, and he has a story credit on the finished film. He was working with them to develop it and didn't really pan out with him. They just... After several years, he left. Um, He went on and did If Looks Could Kill, which is a spy movie that came out the same year as The Rocketeer that we'll tackle sometime in the future. And he would also go on and do some Disney stuff like Angels in the Outfield, as well as the Jonathan Taylor Thomas film Wild America. Um, Some people may remember that. But basically, with this project, they pitched it for years. And Disney was their last stop. They were actually very nervous that Disney would want to tone it down, change the entire vibe of the project, because the the graphic novel is a little bit edgier than what the ultimate movie is, and I think they were worried they would file it down even more. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, like Disney actually really liked the project. They thought the idea of Rocketeer slash Mouseketeer kind of energy, like they knew of a way to sell it. They wanted to do merchandise. They could see themselves cranking out like three of these movies. And so, like, they jumped on pretty pretty quickly. And, you know, William Deere left a- around this point when Disney was picking up the project. And instead, they brought in Joe Johnston, who had gotten his start working at Lucasfilm on the original Star Wars and had gone on to be an art director of the visual effects department on Empire Strikes Back, Raiders, um, uh, Jedi, and started directing in 1989 with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And this was his follow-up. And he's someone who very much has this old-school approach to storytelling. And when you go through his filmography, he was not prolific, and he still occasionally works now, but he did movies like Jumanji, October Sky, Jurassic Park 3, Hidalgo, The Wolfman, Captain America, First Avenger, and uh, I guess most recently, The Nutcracker and The Four Realms. To be fair, he was brought in as a fix-it guy on that one. That was not an original Joe Johnston vehicle. Same with, I believe, The Wolfman was also a very compromised project, but a very like old school director and i think now he's working on a kind of legacy sequel to the honey i shrunk the kids film called shrunk isn't that the one where the chap is coming back like that i can't remember the name of the actor who was in rick the first moranis. one rick, rick moranis, moranis thank yeah. you he's been gone out of like everybody's mind for a long long time mm-hmm. so. crazy return to hollywood but hey keeping it disney i suppose yeah totally is that it Di- yeah it is disney yeah that makes sense yeah. um I I was baffled actually. Just as an aside to your story, there, Cam. When I watch this film, I, I I do a little bit of research. I usually let you take the research, but when I looked up the the director, I was like, oh my god, he's done a ton of films I love. Yeah, Jumanji, I still one of my favorite '90s films. I think Captain America: mm-hmm. First Avenger is great. It is. Um, yeah. So, and also, there's some funny connections between this film and, and Captain America: First Avenger that I want to talk about later. But yeah, I Nazis. I was. <laughs> Yeah, bang on, Nazis, hundred <laughs> um, percent. But yeah, I, I just—it was quite interesting to see that I actually recognized the director's work and and, and quite liked it, which is rare for me because I can never really put two and two together. Right. Yeah. And he really fought hard for this film. He uh, threatened to quit several times over Disney wanting to update it to like the modern day and leave the period setting you know behind. So it, there was definitely some fights along the way, in terms of casting. This is one of those bits of information where I kind of raise my eyebrow because, you know, they say like, well, they wanted Kevin Costner, Matthew Modine, Dennis Quaid, Kurt Russell, you know, Johnny Depp. And I'm like, I feel like this was a wish list. This was not a realistic 
scenario as to who was actually going to do a Disney film based on the Rocketeer. Because there's also stories, Bill Paxton was quoted as saying he was very close to landing the role. Good pun. Yeah, and apparently Vincent D'Onofrio turned it down. So if those two guys are getting you know these offers, I would suspect that it was more like there was a wish list of kind of the hottest stars in Hollywood, but the people that were realistically being approached and possibly testing for the movie were, you know, working actors like Bill Paxton, who at that point was not a really well-known name. Well, the names you just listed off, I don't think I, I would see in this film. This really does feel like a Brendan Fraser vehicle. Mm-hmm. That, that, that caliber of actor, I should say. I don't think Brendan was really that high up. I, I think Paxton could have pulled it off, honestly. I, I don't see Depp. I don't see Depp at all. I think Paxton could have done it, but I honestly, to me, part of the charm and the the growth that this film, not the growth, but the, the ability this film has had to stick with me and still be as cherished as it is to watch it again all these years later, it's largely because it's Billy Campbell, who I could not place in anything else. I mean, obviously, I didn't even know who he was because I told you I thought he was Brendan Fraser, but like I couldn't tell you another Billy Campbell starring role. And so his everyman nature, his like ability to not be a superstar and be recognizable as immediately as, oh yeah, but he's also quote, blah, blah, blah guy. I think that is a strength of it ultimately. Yeah. And you wouldn't get that if you were casting Kevin Costner or Kurt Russell. No, because you'd have to make the movie about the actor would have to be bigger than the movie. Yeah. And this movie, it doesn't do that. He is maybe the superhero star, but it's really, I think, spread out. The wealth is with the focus in this film. It is not directed in a way that is all about Billy Campbell. No. And you would have to do that if you brought in somebody that was, you know, costing you millions of dollars to put in that role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, agreed. And actually, there was a very funny story that actually was printed in uh, Entertainment Weekly magazine that apparently Disney was so like, they just could not figure out who to cast in the lead of this movie. So they actually got one of their uh, staff writers, um, Carrie Kirkpatrick, to read for the role and apparently went so far as to do screen tests. And uh, they kept like, there's a whole bit, I'm going to post links to it in the show notes of this story from this writer who was like, I didn't know what was going on. I'd be showing up for tests. They'd be like, who are you? And I would (laughs) tell them I was a writer and they'd be like, why are you here for the Rocketeer? And basically they just kept pushing him along. And he said, ultimately, you know, it went nowhere, but he said he actually looked a lot like Billy Campbell. So he likes to think that he helped get Billy Campbell the job. Nice. Hey, I, I can buy it, and I guess he got to have a couple of photos taken in the Rocketeer outfit, so... Yep, yep. Everyone's a winner. Exactly. And uh, just a few other casting things. For the female lead, they looked at Sherilyn Fenn from Twin Peaks. They looked at Kelly Preston, Diane Lane, Elizabeth McGovern. They were all considered, but Jennifer Connelly got it. Also, um, Jeremy Irons and Charles Dance were both considered for the villain. Um, I, I suspect Jeremy Irons probably wasn't interested but uh, I think things worked out just fine as they were. Wasn't Jeremy Irons doing Dungeons and Dragons around about this point? No, that's <laughs> no, like a decade later. later. Oh, okay. <laughs> Gosh, of all the things to associate with Jeremy Irons. I always think of, <laughs> I think of that film and Die Hard 3 is all I think of Jeremy Irons. Right, okay. That one's a little more understandable. The Die Hard one's a pretty obscure pool. <laughs> yeah. this this would have like fallen just like a, a couple years maybe like even a year after he won the best actor for reversal of fortune i feel like he was not looking at making this one of his follow-ups to his like 
<laughs> huge, you know, just masterclass role. It, well, yeah, I, I suppose it was, would suit the whole like thespian side of uh, Timothy Dalton's character, maybe. Um, he could but, do it. Like, he, oh, he fun. could do it. They, they both could have done it, but I, I think Dalton is a fine pick for the role. Mm-hmm. And so the movie initially had a budget of thirty-five million, but it rose to forty million. Um, they just said that like Disney was very encouraged by what they were seeing and was actually okay with saying, "Hey, let's spend a little more. Let's make this look better." So it wasn't an issue of you know running over budget. Um, domestically, did not do great. Did forty-six point seven million dollars. So yeah, it was a very you know it, it was an underperformer in North America, and so they actually took the Walt Disney name off of it and released it internationally as a touchstone film huh. because they thought maybe Disney was scaring people away because it was too family friendly looking and um, I couldn't find any international box office really they don't list it anywhere online but I did found, uh, find one bit of information where they said in Britain it made one million pounds over two weeks I mean I'd like to tell you I know that's good or not I don't I'd like to make a million pound over two weeks. Right. <laughs> I don't think that's good. That cannot be good. Mm, I suppose when you look at like the box office of what Bond films are doing, like I even even if you pulled up the box office for like License to Kill two years earlier, I, I'm sure the UK did a, a bit more. Yeah, it was, uh, I think, a very quiet release internationally to the point where, yes, those numbers are not um, given out. So... Yeah, basically it landed at number 27 for the year at the worldwide box office um, between New Jack City and Thelma and Louise. Two very good movies, actually. Um, and the top three for the year, number one was Beauty and the Beast, number two was Terminator 2, and number three was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And it actually opened like right, this movie opened right in the wake of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and it just killed it at the box office. I, I was reading somewhere that, it, yeah, it was like the week after Robin Hood and two weeks before Terminator 2. Mm-hmm. I mean, spoiled for riches in 1991, I have to say. Absolutely. I mean, that is top brass when it comes to films. But yeah, you're not going to get a good run when you're in between those two films. Yeah. And so, like, ultimately the movie underperformed. And so there was not going to be a sequel. Both the, the writers, Bilson and DeMeo, were signed for a sequel. Um, It would have adapted the second um, story in the Rocketeer arc, which was Cliff going to New York, but they said they really didn't have a story hammered out, at least that I could find online. Um, the only issue would have been that they used the villain of the second book in the first movie, which was Lothar, and we'll talk more about that character. Um, but uh, ultimately, you know, as we go down the, the road, Dave Stevens, the creator of the character, passed away in 2008. And over these years, there's been more and more of this bubbling love for the Rocketeer to the point in 2019, there was a Disney Junior animated series, um, which followed seven-year-old Kit Secord, who was the great-granddaughter of the Rocketeer, and it ran 23 episodes. And in 2021, it was announced in August of 2021, just about a year um, ago, it was announced that David Oyelowo would be producing and starring in The Return of the Rocketeer, which would be about a Tuskegee Airman taking over the mantle of the Rocketeer, probably set during the World War II era. It's been quiet about that one since, but I would like to see that. Wait, interesting. So there is a sequel coming? Mm, it's in development. It's supposed to go to Disney+, Plus. yeah. Allegedly. But it sounds like a completely not attached, like completely made up. It's not part of the original graphic novel stories, right? This is just something that they're... I mean, this is a very much a cultural 
move, not something that would have been written back in that day, most likely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is with that graphic novel, those two collected stories, there's not a lot left to adapt. The second book is him going to New York, but like the story of it, I don't know that you could really do a particularly great film for it. So like, I think no matter what, it's going to be invention. Um, So it sounds like they're going to go more with like a kind of legacy sequel versus something that is a direct sequel to The Rocketeer. Okay. Well, we could maybe talk a little bit more about legacy in a second. Well, there we go, folks. We've received our mission briefing, and I think Alan Arkin is giving us the thumbs up from the side of the runway. (laughs) It's time to talk about The Rocketeer. Aaron, you are a guest. You've never spoken about it on Feeling Film, much to your surprise, which I quite like uh, that you were surprised by it. Um, Tell us, what do you think of The Rocketeer in the year 2022? I love it. I love it. I love it. And it has grown on me between revisiting two years ago and revisiting it just a few days ago. I think it is an outstanding movie overall. I just yearn for this era of adventurous storytelling that is wholesome, that is charming. There's just a simplicity to the entire plot of this movie that doesn't get too complicated. It's like, oh, we just discovered you're a Nazi. And then it's just, he's just a Nazi. There's not 15 other twists that are baked into that. I think the performances stand up incredibly well. Obviously, Jennifer Connelly has, I think, become even more of a heartthrob for us since this film. And so looking back on this as an early one for her just elevates it in that regard. We talked a little bit about the performances or or the, the starring of Billy Campbell and why I like that. The idea of the Rocketeer in general is just so much fun because you don't have to be anybody special. Like even a Tony Stark is extremely smart. He's not just becoming Iron Man accidentally. There's a lot of work and effort that goes into that. And this is just a couple of friends. That's one thing I absolutely love about the movie as well is that the central relationship in this is a single elderly guy and a young man. And and Mm -hmm. that is the friendship. And that's just not a normal movie pairing that is focused on as heavily as we get to see in this. I think the meta fun that the movie has with the acting idea is hilarious. Everything with Neville playing this Errol Flynn knockoff and the dialogue that we get from those sections is some of my favorite, like the director who comes in at one point, I think, and says something, gosh, I wish you guys probably have the quote written down somewhere, but it's, he's like, acting is not acting. It's acting. And you need to act so that you can act. And that's acting. And it's just a hilarious, like jokey way to poke fun at the movie without being, I don't know, annoying and over the top. And, and, and it just makes sense with the plot here that someone would be secretly working for a villain. You know, I think this also plays on something that happened later on, which the Red Scare era and how Americans were so worried about people in Hollywood and positions of importance being communists. And that's exactly what is happening here. Someone who has all of this fame and these resources is able to kind of be a secret agent. I also like that Howard Hughes is in this. I like the way it blends Mm -hmm. 
fiction and reality in a way that kind of takes some rumors and things that people would naturally assume, you know, Howard Hawks might have been involved in and then just plays it up just a little bit to make it more exciting and fun. And it just, it's a nonstop romp. I think the pacing is fantastic. The CGI does not hold up, but whatever. I'm not going to hold it that accountable for that 20 years after the fact. I mean, like things when Neville blows up, it's just, it is horrible. It's <laughs> I mean, amazing. Horrible. I love it. It's you fun. Know <laughs> yeah, but it's horrible, but it's fun, right? It's it's wonderfully horrible, <laughs> but in a way where I'm like, I love this and I'm not even being mean spirited and mocking it. I love it. It looks great. <laughs> and I like that it is unabashedly pro-American without being so in a like dripping over the again over the top way i feel like it's it certainly does that like there's a great moment with paul sorvino classic gangster actor playing a gangster and the great scene where he's sitting there shooting the tommy gun they're trying to fight the the nazis and he just looks to his right and it's the fbi agent they just kind of look at each other and they kind of almost like grin and like they're on the same team because it's like oh well we were fighting each other but dadgummit I'm a patriot. Like I'm only going to rob from Americans. Like I don't, the Nazis can't do that, which is ridiculous, right? On the surface when you think about it, but in the moment it's a rah-rah kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of that, that in there, the way the town supports Billy and tries to stand up for him and protect him in that, that great diner scene where the, the pie and the coffee get thrown around. Yeah. I, I really just, I, there's not a missed beat in this movie for me. It really is one of those films that I like every little second of it it's you know it, just that scene you were talking about with the gangsters and the fbi fighting side by side all the stuff around that is just so well written for me that there's a bit of dialogue where savino is like i may not make my money the right way but i'm 100 percent american and i'm not working for some two-bit nazi and it's like yeah, yeah great this is just fun and then and then uh the rocketeer is like flying off by the american flag and he's like go get him kid like yeah I, I wanted to pump, I wanted to fist pump the air, and I'm British. <laughs> I don't even know why it worked on me. <laughs> well, that shot of the Rocketeer in front of, like, the American flag is brilliant. Like, one of the great superhero shots of not just that era, but I think of superhero movies in general. And I remember that was heavily used in all the trailers, and it was really effective. I mean, I'm Canadian, I'm not American, but that shot was just, like... It had that same energy you would see in like the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, yep. where you see that projected and you're like, I feel like this is inspiring. This speaks to something that is, you know, big and impressive and worth looking up to. So I, I love that shot and just the energy, you know, you're talking about um, Paul Sorvino. He was just the year before in Dick Tracy as Lips Manless, a gangster. Like he has the comic book mobster down pat and he is so much fun here too. Great. What's that name again? It sounded great. What, Lips Manless? Lips Manless. Fantastic. <laughs> Gangster name. Listen here, Lips. <laughs> yeah, you would love Dick Tracy, Scott, if you like names like that. Every, uh, every like, mobster has some sort of uh, reference to, like, a physical deformity or some sort of aspect about their character that is standing out. Like, there's mumbles, shoulders, flat top. They've all got names like that. I need to watch that film at some point. But, Cam, uh, what about you? What did you think of The Rocketeer? I thought this movie was a lot of fun. And there is a word that I think kind of sums up what Joe Johnson is capturing, and it's just joy. And it's something that we don't really strive for too often when we make these types of movies now. Um, 
you know, I, I like a lot of the Marvel movies, but they typically will rely more on kind of this knowing, almost ironic sense of humor. It's like constantly kind of pointing out the jokes. They aren't really willing to just unabashedly be inspiring and cheerful. And I like that that's what this movie is. And I think Joe Johnston, I don't think he got a ton of credit for this movie, especially at the time. It was like, yeah, yeah, he made kind of a silly Raiders knockoff, which I think at the time was a very common thing to label it as. Roger Ebert, you know, compares it to Raiders somewhat unfavorably in his review. Um, But what he's doing is very difficult. You can see how this movie could be so corny or just like make you just kind of uncomfortable with how kind of good natured and, you know, folksy it is. But the fact that it all works on an inspiring level and is characters that you can actually have fun with, I think really speaks to honestly why he was hired for Captain America First Avenger, where he kind of had to do the same thing with Captain America, who's an inspiring character that doesn't have an ironic edge. I think like his input on this movie is just vital to his its success. It's very different than the than the stories. Like I would say the stories are much darker. Cliff Secord is hmm, a little more of a um he's a very much a 1930s guy and he has a real edge to him. And that's something that I think they found a very good way at navigating in terms of making it more of a character that kids can really love but keeping enough of the recognizability of that character that it still feels like a true adaptation as opposed to just an entirely new character in that place. So I thought, like, as a lead he worked, and just some of the, like, big set pieces. I remember loving them as a kid. Everything with the Zeppelin was just unbelievable to see on the big screen. And some of the effects, as we've said, haven't necessarily held up or maybe the action seems a little under crank now compared to what we're used to but uh or even you know what even compared to something like Raiders of the Lost Ark in those days like you know you look at the Spielberg action how it's aged versus maybe how the Rocketeer action has aged but like nonetheless I think this movie just has a real spirit of fun that is just infectious I think fun is a, a very important word with this film I, I I'm not gonna like you know, lambast people for not going to see this in 1991 because I don't know what people were thinking or looking for in films at that point. It, different time. But I feel like this is the film we needed to be watching now compared to necessarily what they needed to be watching in 1991 because everything feels so dreary and dark nowadays. This is... Well, I, I said it. My top line is, where have you been all my life about this film? It. I love the Christopher Reeve Superman films, the first two. I have a little bit of like jokey love for the third one. The fourth one can take its quest and go elsewhere. <laughs> uh, no time for that film. Um, but this film just feels like it's tapping right into that vein. I'm not a patriotic person, um, but I like a bit of nostalgia. And this film was tapping directly into that. And I feel like maybe in 1991, they didn't need that which is fair. But, I mean, just for me, I, I want to talk about Billy Campbell for me personally, maybe a little bit later on, because I'm not too sure I'm on board. But apart from that, I think in terms of a script, this is some of the best writing I think I've come across in like a, in a superhero film. Like, we've only done Condor Man on this show. This is leaps and bounds <laughs> better than Condor Man. <laughs> the I heck can... is Condor Man? <laughs> Oh I'm boy! Not even... Oh, I'm not... oh! Check it out. You won't be disappointed. <laughs> it's it's a hella. It's a Disney spy superhero film. It's okay. the only spy superhero you're ever going to find. Uh, yeah, because I, I guess the Rocketeer isn't a spy. 
So no, no, it's just the villain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which so, was an interesting thing to note when I was rewatching it. Yeah, um, check out Condor Man. But um, okay, yeah, the script is top notch, and I'm gonna sort of segue into my first like actually as part of my top line. But like the score, I think is fantastic. I think the performances, for the most part, are fantastic. But for me, I, especially on my second viewing, I was just noticing things about like setup and payoff. It was just so well done. You're like, chewing gum. Puts it on. Takes it off and the plane comes down. Puts it on the jacket pack and at the end he peels it off. Timothy Dalton gets exploded. Set up, pay off the soup. She has soup at the Bulldog restaurant. And then she has soup when she's out for Timothy Dalton. That's why he knows to give her soup to put the label in it so that she can see the writing. The Nazis in the cinema. And the, the Lindenberg blimp or whatever it is. Set up, pay off. I was blown away. I and I'm like and so I go back to my top line. Where have you been all my life? Because I I I wish I'd been jetpacking with the Rocketeer since 1991. But to Cam's point, like it's not done in the way that most films would do it today, which is draw arrows on the screen to be like make sure you notice this soup for later, wink 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 and then mm-hmm. oh hey it's the soup again. Like it's so subtle. Like you don't you don't even see the gum mm-hmm. until I mean it's that's a forty five minute apart moment, right? It's just one little pop, put the gum on there, goes about his business, and then it hits you, and you get to have that moment of surprise. Like, oh yeah, that's what he just did. He took off the oh instead of expecting it to happen, you get to have a little bit of a shock and a fun surprise. Would would a Marvel version of this be like you would keep seeing him flying and then the gum slowly starting to peel off over several yes. scenes and yeah. then you get yep. the reveal? That's exactly right. And someone would mention the gum at some point, I think, as well, along the way. Like someone would say something like, you know, like, why do you have gum stuck to your pack? Or, or something, you know, there'd be a, a quippier line than that. But yeah. PV would say something like, um, kid, we've got to sort your jetpack out and get that gum out of there. Something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Well, I'll give you, it's not a Marvel movie, but do you remember in The Dark Knight Rises how many times they mentioned the software patch in the uh, in the bat? A couple of times, yeah. It's like there's multiple points. It's like several points. They're like, boy, we haven't upgraded that software patch. Boy, <laughs> what's going on with that software patch? And so at the end, they can be like, wait, someone did the software patch. And you're like, oh, I remember that because they mentioned it seven times. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Well, there you go. Um. But I'll I'll throw it to you, Aaron. Something else that you haven't mentioned, but a like for the film. Something to point out. I like the fact that it's just, I said wholesome, but what I mean by that is just, this is a community and they're all about taking care of each other. The idea of that little restaurant, the Bulldog, where everybody goes and how that conflicts, especially in the character of Ginny, who is like separated. She's in these two worlds. She wants the Hollywoodness. She wants to go to the fancy restaurants and go dancing. And Cliff's like, yeah, but we're good. What's wrong with just coming back here over and over and over? And how those things are very real aspect of like relationships and having and how you navigate that when you're coming together and the way that they deal with this experience where they clearly have feelings for one another but they also have a little bit of a different perspective on what they want out of their lives and that's how you 
have to deal with in real relationships. You have to find a way to balance those things. So I like that. And I like the way that he just, he puts his life on the line without thinking about it and without propping himself up as any sort of hero. When whatever the guy's name is, I want to say, it's, is it Harry? I can't remember. He goes up and he's flying in the clown outfit trying to save the day and, and entertain the crowd. And we realize like, oh, he hasn't flown in forever and he's probably going to crash. And what Cliff does is he just immediately runs against this completely unstable pack. And he's like, I'm going to go try and save him. And and there's not, it's, it's in the writing. Like you said, it's so minimized and it's not blown up into this mega event and moment. It just happens very naturally. PV says, you know, it, we haven't tested it. So he gives you the one line of dialogue you need to know to tell you this is a risk. But then it's just, all right, kid, like, go. I I understand. And everybody just realizes like there's a a goodness to his character mm-hmm. that he's putting his life on the line, not just for Jenny and love, which so many movies and stories do. They make it about a, a relationship type of saving thing but he just would do it for anybody as we've already seen and i really appreciate that aspect of his character like he's very much just like a kind of wide-eyed hero who's just wants to do good and you know save his girlfriend or help his friends like it's not someone who has this like very it is a somewhat classic superhero arc but he's not like a He's not a larger-than-life character, and I like that he's portrayed very much as an everyman. And, you know, you mentioned the conflict he has with Jenny about her, you know, career aspirations. That is very, very much a part of the graphic novel, which is uh, the the girlfriend's name is not Jenny, it's Betty. And she's modeled so so heavily on Betty Page, the uh, pinup model, that I believe they actually gave her money because the likeness was so bang on. And I believe that also Dave Stevens became friends with Betty Page in the later years of her life over, you know, her, using her in his work. But like she's, you know, basically doing nude modeling for like a sketchy photographer. And it's like much darker, but also Cliff's back and forth with her is very much a, you know, 1930s man. Um, <laughs> not exactly respecting a you know woman in that era's career choices. And it's. Mm-hmm. You would look at that relationship now and say, this is a very toxic relationship carrying through this entire book. Probably quite accurate to 1930s how, you know, someone like a Cliff Secord might act, but does not translate as well into a Disney film. And I thought they did a good job at kind of summing up that conflict of the book in just really that diner scene and having that kind of carry over the movie where you understand the conflict without making Cliff seem like a super jealous jerk through the entire duration of the story. Well, he's he's the classic Superman in Smallville. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, he he doesn't. He's the the super strong farm boy who just you know gee willikers and wants the best for all mankind. You know that's and, and that's lovely to see. But he can't understand what she wants out of all this glitz and glam. But you understand both perspectives, which is and it's. I think it goes back to the writing again, and, and it's just wonderful in that sense. Um, yeah, I, 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 I keep fawning over the writing. I'm sorry about that. But like, Cam, what about you? Like something you liked? For me, in this era, when I see this movie the first time, what I'm looking for in movies is I'm a big villains guy. I was someone who thought, you know, Darth Vader was the coolest thing ever. That's why I love Dick Tracy. It's just like 27 amazing villains. 
and the Rocketeer, you had Timothy Dalton, and you also had Lothar, who I thought was so cool as a kid. You know, he's introduced, like, listening to opera, eating finger sandwiches. It's uh, the actor Tiny Ron in heavy prosthetics, looking a lot like a Dick Tracy character. And I just find, like, these movies tend to live or die depending on their villains, and I think these two are really fun. Lothar is your kind of classic almost like Jaws or Odd Job style henchman where he gets a lot of big, fun action scenes. He has a very imposing, iconic look that is recognizable in silhouette, uh, which I think is very important. And he was modeled um, on the horror actor um, Rondo Hatton of the era, who also did other stuff, like he did the Oxbow Incident, which is a classic Western. But he has a very distinct look, and they kind of made it look a little more mutated and did something kind of eerie and creepy for the movie. And very accurate to the comic book version as well. I think very effective. And Timothy Dalton is having the time of his life. I don't know that I've seen Timothy Dalton have this much fun since she was riding in a cello case down a snow slope. Um, he is just camping it up with the best of them. And I love like when he's staging his... It's basically the Adventures of Robin Hood, the Errol Flynn movie, mm -hmm. when he's having the sword fighting and just how hammy... Um, Timothy Dalton is, but at the same time, how believable he is as a villain. And when you're watching him, you know, try to seduce the Jennifer Connelly character, spouting movie lines, I'm just in love with this villain. He's magnetic every second he's on screen. He has an amazing death. Everything about him clicks. And I really enjoyed that, like, the plot of this movie, the villain plot, I mean, as a kid, I understood it instantly. So it's very clean storytelling. Mm -hmm. Like, it just tracks so well. And they are showing at one point the, uh, you know, like a footage they've managed to smuggle out of this Nazi plot. And it shows all these little rocket men like flying yeah. across the sky, <laughs> which is amazing. It's great. And it starts showing like the globe with like the animated arrows, you yeah. know, circling around the globe, <laughs> which I'm pretty sure is a reference to a Disney movie of the 40s called Victory Through Air Power, um, which was a World War II era animated slash live action film they did that, would be, that was basically about how America could win the war through its air power. And it has a lot of animated segments that I'm pretty sure this movie was paying homage to. So like all of this stuff, like these pulpy villain things, these references to kind of this animation style of the 40s, all of that really worked for me. But, you know, the villains in particular, did they work for you guys? Well, it's interesting because I'm actually split on the two of them. Ooh. Yeah, um, but taking it back to Lothar for a second, it's interesting that he even has the Bond villain, like, survives the main guy dying and then comes back to try and kill the hero. Mm. You get that in a couple of Bond films. But yeah, Lothar didn't work for me. Okay. Um, and here's why. This film isn't asking much of its audience. It's asking that we accept that a rocket pack works and is able to be <laughs> used and that not uh, Errol Flynn was uh, a Nazi spy, which was a rumor, but was proved to be untrue. You put Lothar in there. He looks otherworldly. And every time I saw him and his prosthetics, which, did, I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> it stands out. But like I, every time I saw him, I'm like... I don't want to say it pulls me out of the film. It's a superhero movie. I understand this, folks. But a, a little thing in my brain goes, nah, this doesn't look right. And so I couldn't ever get on board, even though I know, uh, what's the chap's name? Tiny Ron is is, is quite the uh, the character actor. He's done a lot of big roles. He was also on Star Trek Next Generation, I think, as well. Um, DS9. Is it DS9? My apologies. 
Uh, there, yeah. there goes my Star Trek uh, credibility for the rest of the day. Sorry, Cam. Hmm. But uh, yeah, it didn't work for me. But Timothy Dalton is, I think, my favorite thing about this film in terms of performances. Chewing the scenery, quite rightly so. He's loving every second, especially that scene where he's like waving the uh, the, the saber around or whatever in his, in his house. It looks like a villain's lair from a Bond film as well, I've got to say. He is loving every second uh, of wearing that mustache. Oh, yeah. And he looks great in it. Oh, yeah. 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 What, what about yeah, you, Aaron? He's, he's awesome. I, I think he's great. I, one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is the one that you pointed out where he and Jenny are, he's trying to seduce her after he's kidnapped her and he just keeps using movie lines and she's calling him out on them. And she goes through that whole sequence and invites him into the bathroom and then hits him over the head. And I just love the, the stinger line of, I finally had my scene with Neville Sinclair. And, and you realize like, Oh, well she's been acting as well. And so, Hey, maybe she is an actress that deserves a chance. I just liked how that played out. Lothar worked completely for me. I, I think it's because he is, in such a small dose Mm -hmm. and because the villains are spread out, you don't have directly Neville going after the Rocketeer because he's using Lothar. And then you have the sort of side villain of the gangsters and the Valentines who are trying to get it back because they were hired to do so. And so you, you have these competing groups and i think if you maybe if you didn't have the valentine gang chasing him as well and i mean at one point you have the fbi trying to catch up with him as also Mm -hmm. if you didn't have those things and it was strictly neville using lothar to go after him repeatedly throughout the movie i would that would wear me down but since you only see him in small doses i really like him And part of that is probably because, you know, he is meant to be just this imposing figure. He's not meant to have a bunch of dialogue and to talk his way out of scenes. He's meant to just look scary, leave a, you know, tremendous amount of damage in his wake. I like how they shoot that first scene where he kills the guy who's in the hospital and we don't see it happen. You just know he snuck in and then they walk in. They're like, oh, my gosh, I think they mentioned a couple different times that characters look like they've been turned into a pretzel. Essentially, and that that tells you it's like, oh, he we don't have to see him do that act. We just know he's a giant man. This is the aftermath. We should be scared of him. So I I personally like thought it was a great combination of villains. The two of them. One is the brains. One is the bronze. And I can kind of explain like that. You're saying Lothar didn't look like he fit into this world the mm-hmm. way the other characters do. I think that's an issue with because they pulled this character out of the second book and in the adaptation of this movie it's largely the first book it, it's very different like it manages to be pretty accurate to that story while at the same time taking many different angles on it and changing up a lot of information there's no central villain of book one there's various plots there is a nazi spy plot he does happen across but there's no big sinclair villain at the heart of it all And Lothar is a character in the second one who we find out that Cliff used to work for basically a traveling carnival. And there was like the freak show aspect of the carnival. And Lothar was a member of that. And Cliff has this long history of showing up late for things. Mm -hmm. And he was an assistant to like an escape artist, like a Harry Houdini style escape artist. And he would do a trick where Cliff would be submerged in water and, you know, he would be freed at the very end. 
Cliff runs late, and this little person who works at the carnival takes the place of where Cliff would be and goes into the water. And because her lungs aren't as big as Cliff's, she dies during this show. And she was someone who Lothar was very close to. So he's seeking revenge on all the people who were associated with her death. So it makes sense in terms of the background of him being someone who would be in this traveling carnival, why he looks like he does. But in this movie, you're right. Like, you don't have that framework. So you're really just working from the James Bond kind of Jaws model of this person looks outlandish, but they exist within this society. I think that's fair enough. That is a much darker part of this story that does not exist in this film. Yeah, no that, kidding. I can see why they... <laughs> I, I, I get why they excise that. that. That got real dark. Well, doesn't it make you wonder what the sequel would have been? Because <laughs> that's the sequel to the book. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're going to... Like you said earlier, I think it's going to have to be like new material when this uh, Return mm-hmm. of the Rocketeer uh, flies into cinemas or into Disney+. Plus. Um, I have one more like that I've sort of breezed past I will just throw in, which is I just think James Horner is a fantastic uh, composer. Maybe his second best theme after Titanic. Honestly, okay. like the theme for this particular movie, just the theme. I love the whole score, but it's great. The main title theme where like the, and especially in the opening, you see the rocketeer and then the doors open and then like that's the theme hits. You're like, oh, Lordy, this is, this is some good music right now. That is a great moment in this film. And that, that's going to stay in my head permanently. James Horner's tough because I'm like thinking also of his score for Aliens and also the uh, the music he did, especially the opening theme for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. But like he's someone who doesn't matter about rankings, understands how to make themes that really grab you. And that's something we do not get anymore. I like Captain America First Avenger. Does not have a particularly stirring score that I remember. And I do love that about this era where... All of these movies, these composers showed up, delivered incredibly memorable music, and then walked away. And you were like, anyone could do that. That's just the norm. And then you realize nowadays, the way we get a lot of these scores, it's not the norm. And I really miss scores like this. Yeah, do yourself a favor if you've not actually seen the film and you're not going to make it. Maybe just pop onto Spotify, listen to the main title theme for this. It's a top-notch piece of music. Mm -hmm. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report calling all agents independent podcasting much like the spy game requires considerable resources whether it's research equipment hosting or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair we're putting out the call for your support that's right as you may know we've activated the spy hearts patreon home of our ever-growing lineup of agents in the field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Scott, bring me the Boar Worms, because we are going to continue the Dalton celebration by looking at 1980s Flash Gordon. Flash! Oh! And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards but before this message self-destructs cam resume the spy jinx um but let's glide over uh to dislikes if people have any aaron i'll throw it your way uh what have you got for us i don't have any strong ones honestly i think that you know the cgi as i mentioned i hate to call it a dislike but it's a thing that stands out sure as aged and silly 
I would just like Cam. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Wow! Yes. <laughs> wow. Way to go, Scott. Thank you. Was, Enjoy it that now. Was good. <laughs> uh, but even even when he's like flying across the screen and you're just watching the Rocketeer, yeah. it's so difficult after having Iron Man, frankly, because you yeah. see what it looks like for another person in a similar looking suit with kind of jetpack capability to fly and just look so much cooler and so much more normal. I, I, neither of them are normal, but it just doesn't look natural. And so that's a little bit of a tough sell for me. I think other than that, I pretty much like everything about it other than it's it's definitely convenient. I mean, that plays into what I enjoy about how wholesome and fun it is, but it is certainly a movie that you could poke a lot of holes into if you mm. try. I mean, just flying with the jetpack in general is I, I can't imagine or Cliff trying. He's supposedly unrecognizable, even though the only thing this is this classic movie thing where, oh, well, he doesn't have the helmet on, despite the fact that he's the only person that we've ever seen wearing this very oddly specific type of jacket with the flap thing. <laughs> like he, he's the only person that looks like that with that thing on, but yet, oh, he doesn't have the helmet. So I'm sure this guy's not that, the person we're looking for. Those kind of like little details are ones that I notice, but they don't impact my enjoyment of the movie in any significant way. Uh, I, I think the Nazis are pretty silly in their implementation in this outside of Neville. I think it's, pretty ridiculous when the nazi regiment shows up outside the grounds of the griffith <laughs> observatory i mean it's a really f cool fun to watch moment that gives you that rah-rah feeling but it it makes no sense and just like with the zeppelin the zeppelin appearing over the top of the griffith observatory is badass like you said cam about like in a theater you're gonna be like oh that looks so cool this thing is enormous no one saw the gigantic zeppelin hanging out over los angeles and had a question about it like there's so many of those little niggling things that i i could point out but other than those i i really like it zeppelins have a uh zeppelins have a shaky history in spy movies because just a couple uh no what, stealth like tech six, <laughs> six years before you have view to a kill where zeppelins are sneaking up on people and they don't hear them behind them so yes <laughs> yes i was going to point out the zeppelin in my sort of final notes because that bit made me laugh because it appears over the observatory, but there's no sound. And then it pops up and it's like, Rah! did they not hear it like directly behind <laughs> the building? The Griffith Observatory has this great obscuring of sound effect, apparently. Uh, I'm going to have to go there and see it and hear it or not hear it, as the case may be for myself. Um, speaking of like things, funny things with the suit. We mentioned the, the test footage and the Nazi sort of cartoon. Before that, there's some cool stuff of the Nazis testing it out and it failing. And I, this is a classic spy hard mm -hmm. thing of connecting to a really obscure spy film. But it gave me flashbacks to Operation Crossbow. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. With the test footage from that. Um, and the other thing I want to mention is, like, I know we get to see, like, Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man now floating around. And that's another kind of, like, man finds tech and it takes him to the sky kind of film. Very similar. Like, there's moments in this I'm pretty sure that they were looking at when they were making Iron Man. Like, shots. Especially that first flight. Yeah. But, yeah. like, one thing I think I almost prefer about this is the sort of nobility to uh, Billy Campbell's Cliff Secord character. RDJ's got that whole, like, anti-hero thing going on, and that was very cool in the noughties and the tens a little bit, but it's starting to grate on me a bit these days. So going back and just, like, hearing him being, like, 
witty about everything and like talking down to the whole thing. I think now with Great Omi more than seeing this sort of wholesome, uh, you know, C chord version of it all. Yeah. And I mean, this one's in a way fighting against the wave because you've got Batman in 89, right? And then you're going to have a lot of things like Dark Man and going forward, a lot of we're going to push the superheroes towards more of a darker angle. This one is really looking back at like the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, which maybe was why it wasn't as popular as some of those others. Like it just felt even at the time like a bit of a throwback versus something that was of the year 1991. I think that's entirely, entirely possible. Um, Cam, a dislike from you? I think for me, the one thing that jumps out, and this is a delightful movie. I mean, yep. in terms of like v- visual designs, I think like the suit is incredible. Like it's pretty much bang on what the comic book version is, but what a great design. But in terms of the visuals of the movie, I did miss a little more of that strong visual stamp you had at that time where you look at the Tim Burton Batmans, you look at Darkman, you look at um, Dick Tracy. These are incredibly visually dynamic movies that really try to bring the comic book sort of artistry to the screen. Whereas this one is shot a little more cleanly. It feels, in terms of its visual style, like a Disney movie of this era. Um, I like the way it's directed in terms of like, you know, its action and its storytelling. I think it's like totally decent visually, but it doesn't have that sort of ambitious approach to the visuals that... I really love in a lot of the other movies of this era. I remember either you said it earlier or I read it, but they were trying to change the design of the outfit. I just think that would have been the silliest choice because it, this it's yeah, it's amazing how I knew about the Rocketeers suit before I ever saw the film. It it goes beyond the film itself. It's an iconic outfit. I think I've seen it in person at a museum at some point or a version of it. But yes, changing that is silly, but I know what you mean about sort of the world maybe not being there. It does sort of feel like the back end of California the whole time. Yeah, and the cinematographer was Hiro Narita, who did uh, Star Trek VI um, this same year. Um, But like, he's someone who has done visually really eye-popping stuff. Um, I would have liked a little more of that. Uh, So, you know, I like the design of the movie, but in terms of like the cinematography and just really feeling like you're jumping into a comic book. It didn't quite have that as much as even something like the Donner Superman's do, uh, movies do. I think that's fair. I think my main dislike that I have left to talk about that we haven't really spoken about, we haven't really spoken about performances too much apart from perhaps Timothy Dalton. I mean, like Alan Arkin is great, I think is PV. Mm-hmm. A lot of time for that sort of father-son mm-hmm. relationship that they have. I think, uh, I think Aaron mentioned that earlier, actually. Jennifer Connelly is great as Jenny. I mean, I would like to have seen more Jenny. Mm-hmm. Maybe like seeing what happened to her after the film. And that's one question I'm going to take to the writer um, when we record it actually later on today. Um, it's like, was there a version when she had a better a better ending than just like, oh, shucks, Billy got his plane. And his girl. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, and that's it. Like, um, But I want to talk about Billy Campbell. Yes. I think it's one of the things that holds the film back for me. I, I totally get the visual appeal, the everyman look of him, I think uh, almost that feels like an underhanded insult there. Like, you look like everyone. Cool. Um, but I don't know if he's got the charisma to be a leading man, at least from the one film I've seen him in, which is this, and the one episode of Star Trek Next Generation I've seen him in. He's more of a TV guy because he was like the lead on the show Once and Again, I think it was called, for like five years or something. 
he's one of these guys that works consistently in television, but has never been like a you know marquee name. Okay, yeah, I I don't know. I, he's perfectly fine in this film, but there's like there's like a scene really early on that jumped out to me on my first viewing where like he he lands in a swamp after his first time flying it, and he's sat there on the floor, and, and Alan Arkin's PV walks up and he goes, "I like it." I see. What delivery was that? <laughs> what was that? I, I don't know. I, I giggled at it and I went back and watched the scene again just to see if it was like a quirk. But he never really spoke that way for the rest of the film. I like it. Like, okay. Um, but yeah, for me, it was a little bit of a charisma vacuum. I, I, he, he really did give it his all. And I think he's, he is the heart of the film in many ways. But he really did play the everyman. It also speaks to the way they made these movies back then where your hero tended to be a little blank is a kind of a harsh word, but like they tended to be a little more low wattage and the villains were played up big. And you see that in a lot of the movies of that era. Um, you can even look at even look at something like The Phantom, which came a few years later, where it's like Billy Zane is, I don't know, kind of bland, but you have Treat Williams like camping it up big time as the villain with Catherine Zeta Jones. So this feels kind of true to that era, but like I know what you mean. I guess to for me, why it works is just like the earnestness of the character really sells when it could easily be cheesy. So yeah, I I, I think that a lot of that is actually more to do with the script and the director than than the performance. Personally speaking, yeah, I, I would say it's more more the script, but I think I ju- I just think that he would overpower the script. He would overpower the role if it was someone with more of a gravitas or with more of a recognizable persona to him. I I think that him disappearing into this, while he may not be the best actor, classically speaking, he may not deliver every line with a, a greatness to it, but he just, the way he looks and the way his mannerisms portray this truly random dude in an airfield who finds a pack to me makes a lot more sense for this. And I, and I think Cam made, makes a great point. I feel the same way that his almost boring nature to him as a character elevates how we get to see Neville and, and it makes him even more exciting and interesting as someone with a lot of personality. But the Rocketeer is doing most of his stuff I mean, the coolness of the Rocketeer is you've got a mask on anyway. Mm. And so yeah. I'm not really worried about as much of his character as I am just seeing him fly around in CGI. I also buy much more of him being on the back foot in the relationship with Jenny mm-hmm. and feeling that much more threatened by her success and being surrounded by, you know, glamorous leading man, Timothy Dalton. Um, I-, I think it works better because he is someone who feels not quite like a movie star, if Kevin Costner or Kurt Russell plays this role, you know they're winding up with the girl at the end. Like, it's very clear that they're always in control and they're just kind of, like, looking down at Timothy Dalton. Whereas I like that because Billy, you know, Campbell feels... I mean, he was an unknown at this point. He's surrounded by, like, people that were more well-known. You know, Jennifer Connelly had done Labyrinth and various other things. Um, Timothy Dalton was James Bond. So, like... I like that he feels overshadowed by the characters, and I actually think it works for especially that relationship dynamic. I, I, I'm not going to fight it. I just, that was my take on it. It's just, um, I think maybe that might have fed slightly into 
reviews. It, the one, the two I read, it did sort of talk about Billy Campbell at the time. Well, it's something they don't do anymore, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Like, you wouldn't cast a lead like this and really kind of, like, uh, underplay them the way they would back then. But, you know, conversely, I've spoken about on the show, like, the Simon Pegg effect for me. if I, I can't see Simon Pegg as anything other than Simon Pegg in every single thing Simon Pegg is in. I said Simon Pegg a few times in one minute. I, I should take a time out. <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm glad it wasn't a Simon Pegg because... I now see Billy Campbell and I think of the Rocketeer. What a great legacy to have. Yeah, if you're going to have one movie to be what people remember you for, because that really is probably it. Or if you're going to get mistaken for Brendan Fraser. I mean, that's not so bad either. He wore a helmet for half the film. So who, who can tell? Maybe Brendan Fraser was his stunt double. Who could tell? I, it, he wasn't, folks. He wasn't. Um, now, before we go to the knock list, I'll just throw it out for any final notes. I actually used most of mine early on because of speaking about it being made into a or having a sequel. Uh, I actually thought it might be primed for a remake instead of a sequel. I think, you know, with modern CG technology, uh, I don't know who you'd cast, but I, I feel like it also could have just been that. They could have just remade it. I think it would have done really well. I think it's too beloved at this point like it's had this like real i think a lot of kids who saw it in 1991 have since you know grown up and really carried this movie with them Mm. that i don't know that like a remake is what that very like vocal fan base would be interested in and maybe it's better to just come up with an original story that can kind of maybe bring billy campbell back for a supporting role and continue the story versus (sighs) this is a as i said fairly accurate to the source material so like do we want to see another adaptation of the same source material i don't know i absolutely think a remake would be a terrible idea i i don't think that the tone and the the plot of this movie is modern i think it works because it's a classic and we at the time were able to get behind stories like that and what we expect from our comic book films these days i'm actually a little surprised that disney is even attempting a somewhat of a sequel because they're competing with mm. themselves and their own comic book brand at this point, their own superhero style. And I'm really curious how much of that is going to bleed into a new version. And so I would much rather them take the risk of a follow-up than trying to revisit it. And it just, I just, I just cannot see any world in which that blimp and those Nazis showing up in the way that they do would play today. And people would be like, oh, but, you know, and Tom Holland's The Rocketeer. Just, oh, God. No, thank you. Oh, God. No. I just had a vision of that. <laughs> I also don't see Disney nowadays having, like, a Tommy gun fight between Nazis and, uh, you know, the FBI or, or mobsters at the end of the movie. Yeah. Like, that's not really... Uh, they've toned things down a little bit since 1991. What a great scene that was, though. That shootout between all the... And, like, the, mm-hmm. So yeah. much fun. Like, they were just unleashing... Just barrels of fake ammo on that. It was, it was great stuff. Um, Aaron, Cam, any final notes from you? Um, for me, 1930s aesthetics look beautiful. Uh, this is not the way the 1930s actually were, but I love the fantasy land depiction of it here. Where, like, do do you say that as if you lived in the time, Cam? Well, I did, and I can actually say, mm. you know, accurately that that was not the way the mm. 1930s were. But like, when you go to like that. Uh, I think it was called like the South Seas nightclub or whatever, where you have the clam opening and the singer coming out, like just beautiful art direction there. And I love that whole aesthetic throughout the entire movie. 
I did like have one missed opportunity, Scott, that you'll appreciate. Go on. When they were at the South Seas Club and he said, meet by the big fish. I was really hoping we would have the big fish from the end of License to Kill <laughs> winking at the camera. That would have been five stars automatic knock list just for that. Just to see that fish get a second <laughs> life. That would have been great. Yes. Yes. Um, there's a couple other notes I made. There's a point, the um, biplane save that he makes where the Rocketeer mm-hmm. is first unveiled. That sequence ends with a yellow biplane slamming into a gasoline truck and exploding. North by Northwest reference? Oh. I felt like it was. Yeah. I definitely, the way that it starts off with the the flying and then it being such a similar plane. Mm-hmm. Well yep. spotted. And then that like segs right into him flying above the clouds next to the plane and having the people on the plane look at him, which is very similar to the people on the train pointing at Superman in Richard Donner's Superman right in the early sections of that movie. And uh, just lastly, Scott, you know, there's a lot of Star Trek connections mm-hmm. in this movie. Did you pick out Max Grodencheck? I certainly did. Playing one of the mobsters off the start. Yeah. Yeah. A very, very, very popular recurring character on Deep Space Nine. And he did pop up on TNG as well. Yeah. He he was the first man to be turned into a pretzel. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I suppose they were both from Deep Space Nine, weren't they? Those two men in that scene. Mm-hmm. Yep. There you go. I will also say uh, people, um, eagle-eyed viewers of the film will notice the singer uh, at that restaurant with the clamshell in is Jan from The Office. Oh, that's right. Oh my god. I wow. saw in the credits Clark Gable was in the movie, but I did not I did not spot who that was. And someone was playing Clark Gable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think he's introduced. I mean, he introduces yep. WC Fields and I think there's a line of dialogue about him compare being compared to Clark Gable. Yeah, there's someone credited as Clark Gable. I don't know where that was because there's the scene where like even the camera's panning past Man's Chinese Theater. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if he was there or something. Who knows? Like, I-, I do like the way the movie works in these real life figures. Like in the original source material, they actually work in more like known characters. Like um, the Shadow pops up in one of the stories, hmm. or Doc Samson is the inventor of the the rocket that he's wearing. So they're working in more pulp characters that time Mm -hmm. i like that this movie instead goes with like the howard hughes and characters like that like the real world historical figures i said howard hawks earlier didn't i they're both great they're both great nobody corrected me nobody corrected me well you said howard hughes originally and then you briefly said howard hawks and i was like dad gummit i i guess i just thought it was a a slip i don't know who the chap is (laughs) who's this other person howard hawks a director oh right from from the time same time period okay yeah, you guys all know. I've barely seen any films. We've, we've covered a hundred and like hundred and seven or eight on the fil- show at this point. I've probably watched about hundred and eight films in my life, so that's about it, really. <laughs> you just keep watching Condor Man over and over, over and over again. That is the sequel to this film. I want get Michael Crawford back in that lycra. I want to see Condor Man versus the Rocketeer. I'm down. <laughs> I I mean, yeah. Uh, Timothy Dalton still well actually his character's not around anymore no he is not <laughs> he met a very grisly end um well gents is the Rocketeer the closest we're ever going to get to heaven <laughs> <laughs> that was a yeah, that was a pretty cynical comment by him at the end of the movie I was like wow that that's pretty dark that seems like maybe it fits in the comic book yeah more yeah but the question is Knockless time. Aaron, you are our guest. You finally get to vote on the knocklist, having come up with the idea yourself independently too. So you finally get to vote on your version, or our version of the knocklist, I should say. Uh, 
up to you, sir. Yes or no, is The Rocketeer making the list of the best spy films of all time? So, a couple things. One, I was looking at the list just last night, and I love that there's a comment on your letterbox page. Somebody's like, man, only like 20 films mm. or something on this list? You guys are being stingy. And you guys had made the comment that it's like almost at this point, probably around 20% of your your total films that have been covered. And that's pretty fair. So we we do a thing where we have a list of our Hall of Fame, which is anything that both my co-host and I consider a five-star movie. And we have a, a very similar percentage of hit rate because obviously you're talking about movies you like more so than ones you don't because that's fun. Mm -hmm. And But I was looking at this list and trying to tell myself what really deserves to be on here and what doesn't. And I don't think this comes close. <laughs> I mean, it's not to me. It's not a spy film. Like it, it is, but obviously now you drop the bombshell. <laughs> we're putting it in the yeah. genre because there's a spy, but it's not. It's so much of the villain is the spy, and it's not even revealed until like the end, really, about the fact that he is a spy. And so when I think about Knocklist, and I think about movies that to me are, if I'm gonna meet an alien and say like, this is what spy cinema is like in the history of movies. This is what you need to, you know, watch to get used to, or to, to kind of sample this genre. There's no way on earth I could put rocket tier in that small group. As much as I love the movie, I just don't think that it deserves that spot. Hey, I think that's entirely fair. We've had films on the show that have been absolutely great. They're just not close enough to being a spy movie. I think Men in Black won a very early entry on the show. It has spy connections. It's uh, hashtag spy adjacent. But, um, I mean, you would put Men in Black on the list of top films of the 90s. Sure, yeah. Yeah. But you wouldn't put it on the list of the best spy movies ever made. So, okay, that's one note. It's all still to play for. The Rocketeer could stick the landing. Cam? I'm in a similar place as Aaron where when the movie's done, I go, this is the sort of movie I would put on the list because I think, like Spy Kids, it is a great introduction, in theory, to the spy world. But it kind of isn't. Like I'm like, the villain is a spy. As he said, it's revealed late. So like, what am I looking at here to represent the spy genre? There's not a lot. If this movie had a stronger spy element... 100% it is the perfect movie to show kids like Spy Kids, but it's not strong enough. And the movie's not really interested in the spy aspect. It's a reveal. Mm -hmm. He's a, revealed as a Nazi spy, but we're not really going through his machinations as a spy. It's really just a way to reveal him as the villain, the big bad of the movie. So in terms of the quality of the movie, there's nothing holding it back. For making the list, it's the spy element that is giving me great pause, which is kind of pushing me towards a no. I, I can't argue with that. I mean, I didn't make a point to mention it in the review because I, I I figured we were going to talk about it now. But in the source material, is there anything more about, you know, the, the spy character? There's less. Huh. Well, there you go. Yeah. I, I, I mean, they built a set for him to go through and have like a spy room. I figured there's probably more to that set that we never saw, which is something I'm going to take to the writer when we speak to him later today. Because I don't think you build that whole like fake bookshelf and like the Nazi documentation without like maybe having a, 
radio in the corner. Oh, she does use a radio. I'm sorry, but like I think of like um, yeah, well you know spy accoutrement stuff sitting around. You know, a briefcase with a dagger sitting in it or something like that. Maybe a James Bond nod or two in there or something. It feels like the perfect thing you could have thrown in, but maybe it just didn't make it to the final cut. So I'll find out about that. But I I, I genuinely can't quibble with that point, Cam. So it's two no's. So I could do what I want, which is fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't I don't think I could vote this on and say that Men in Black wasn't making the list. If we were giving this a pass, Men in Black gets a pass, and then they're both on the list. And I think people would then start to go, well, why is Men in Black on the list of the best spy movies of all time? And everything would start to unravel. So it's a no from me too, but that is no indictment on the film's quality because I absolutely loved it. Right. I absolutely. We all absolutely loved it. I think we can all raise our hands on an audio podcast and say that we absolutely loved this film. Uh, I, if it's on 4K, I'm going to try and find a copy because I've, I saw it on Disney Plus early today and that was gorgeous. I would like to have a bit of physical media. I, I love this film. I can't wait to show it to other people. And I hope to the Disney gods that this sequel happens and it's good. Yeah. I think there's a lot of promise to that concept. And if they are going to move it more towards the 40s, there's a lot you can do with 40s iconography as well. Well, you just think of Captain America, the first Avenger. You, know, you look at all that war stuff there. It was great. Uh, some of the best bits of the film is when he's actually like, dealing with the war yeah. maybe not the cg mess at the end but anyway three no's the rocketeer i'm afraid is not making the knock list it is uh spewing out gasoline or or what was it alcohol uh and it's now set itself on fire and timothy dalton is screaming <laughs> <laughs> uh it has not made the knock list uh and as such the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified aaron you finally have your spy credentials uh, and we are, we thank you very much for taking the time to join us today on the show. We hope uh, we hope it was worth the wait. It was outstanding. I, I had a blast, and I really appreciate getting a chance to come on. But Aaron, before we let you go, I'd be remiss to firstly ask, what have you got coming up? What's you know this is coming out in a few weeks at the time of recording? What have you got coming up in your schedule? We honestly don't know. We're in a period of uh, flux. We've been covering our John Grisham film adaptation series. Mm -hmm. We we went through pretty much all of those minus one that we decided collectively that was too bad to cover. Wait, wait. And uh, which one? The Gingerbread Man. It was a TV movie, and it was based on a like manuscript that he didn't actually end up writing into a book. So we felt good about putting that to the side. That's fair. But. We've had fun going through those, um, and then we're gonna we wrapped up that series with a few good men, which was obviously the only way to end any series on legal thrillers with the best. So we're in a period of looking forward to what we're gonna cover. Probably start hitting on some of the better films of this year to kind of gear up and tie into the awards season that is happening. Uh, we also just covered Real Genius uh, that came out on 4K recently, and so we wanted to revisit it and it was a blast my co-host has a side podcast now covering tv shows and so we brought on his co-host uh, for that show to talk about real genius with us but yeah just uh, getting ready for award season i'm always busy in the fall because of the my critic side right and it, it takes up a lot of my attention well I, you know we are always around on twitter blasting each other's you know stuff out so I'm, if i'm sure you'll find us talking about feeling film somewhere but if they're not following you already, Aaron, where can people find you on social media? Personally, you can find me everywhere under the username Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. -E. That's my Twitter, my Facebook, my Letterboxd, 
literally everything. Uh, you can follow the show at Feel and Film on Twitter, and Feel and Film exists on basically every platform you can imagine, as well as we've started dabbling in a little bit of video content. We're doing our Lord of the Rings Rings of Power recap series. All of those episodes are coming up on our YouTube channel. So all those show notes are are on my you go to my Twitter account, you'll find a link and there's all of them, all of the links there, all in one nice handy spot. And if you don't want to type that out, if you just scroll down, it's on the show notes below. All these links will be there for you too. But wherever you find Spy Hards, you will find Feel and Film. And I highly recommend you check them out. Uh, Aaron, thank you once again for joining us. Your tuxedo and martini kit are in the post. Outstanding. And that was Aaron from the Feeling Film podcast. Thank you, Aaron, once again for joining us. Cam, the question goes to you, sir. What on earth are we doing next week? Well, typically on this podcast, we like to do, you know, originals and remakes, and we work those into our kind of our franchise slots of the podcast. But we, early on in the show, we were negligent. We didn't really think things through. So we tackled Alfred Hitchcock's The 39 Steps. But you know what? There's other versions of that story. So we are going to catch up with the 1959 The 39 Steps, starring Kenneth Moore. I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, I am. Um... I haven't watched any other 39 Steps since my original 39 Steps. Mr. Memory left quite the impression on uh, the budding agent Scott. But yeah, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, actually, we didn't really think as much about planning our films early on. We didn't think about long term what we would do. So yeah, we're going to cover all of the 39 Steps at one point, but I don't think we're going to do it in that the sort of way we've done it with all the other like series we probably won't tackle another 39 steps for a couple of years after this so i'm glad we get to talk about it again i think it's a really fun story i'm looking forward to seeing what another director does with it yeah and this movie is a little tricky to find depending on where you live but it is on youtube i will warn you though the last maybe 20 minutes the audio gets a little out of sync so if you are also looking for a version that is you know front to back flawless archive.org check the spy hard social media we will have links there for you but again archive.org and just search 39 steps 1959 i think uh, if we ask super nice cam might even put a link in the show notes below next week to the archive.org link definitely well there you go folks your mission should you choose to accept it is to watch the 39 steps from 1959 that's a lot of numbers and join us next week if you liked what you heard on this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, Cam, oh, my prince, would that you drink of my lips as deeply. 